Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50 plus, RSV for age 60 plus, and pneumonia for age 65 plus. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. The damage that eugenics did is one of those questions that we're still trying to answer. Because basically you have a field that was not just designed to get rid of one person. You really have to look at it in its entirety. It's designed to have intergenerational impact. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Several decades before Adolf Hitler and the Nazis took the notion of purifying society to genocidal extremes in the Holocaust, the ideas underlying it were enthusiastically embraced in Vermont. Eugenics is the pseudoscience that humans can be improved through selective breeding. Many American states, including Vermont, used eugenics as the basis for public policies, including family separation, institutionalization, and sterilization. By 1936, over half of states practiced eugenical sterilization. In the 1920s and 30s, vulnerable Vermonters were targeted, institutionalized, and otherwise separated from their families in an effort to, quote, strengthen the population. Many were sterilized. In 2021, the state of Vermont formally apologized for the practice, and the legislature is exploring other responses. A new book, Vermont for the Vermonters, The History of Eugenics in the Green Mountain State, explores Vermont's experience with eugenics. Author Mercedes de Guardiola originally wrote the book as an undergraduate thesis at Dartmouth College, where she graduated in 2017 with a degree in history and art history. De Guardiola also testified about the eugenics movement before the Vermont legislature in 2021. I began by asking Mercedes de Guardiola how she first became interested and aware of eugenics. So eugenics is something that most Americans are not, the term is not something we're really familiar with in this country. It's not widely taught in high schools or even at the college level. But the subject of eugenics and developments in genetics in recent years has always been something that's been of interest to me, whether that's, you know, the history of Nazi Germany or topics such as genetic engineering. So while I wasn't aware of the term, I was familiar with some of the history that's been brought on. And when I was at Dartmouth, a professor suggested to me that I might look at the history of eugenics and particularly in Vermont. It's eugenics is basically the pseudoscience of human breeding. It came to light in Great Britain and was adapted by the majority of American states in the 20th century before it became the foundation of Nazi Germany and its policies, with Nazi Germany really looking to American states as it implemented laws and programs. So she suggested that I might look at eugenics in Vermont. It was a state that we are aware there were records for, which isn't the case in a lot of states in the U.S. So there's a lot of research to be done, and it was very amazing to be able to do that work here in Vermont. You mentioned in your book that there had been one kind of seminal study of this, uh, a 1999 book, Building Better Vermonters, um, and then really not much since then. So maybe tell us about the this landscape that you wandered into where it was sparsely recorded and, and what was the state of knowledge about eugenics in Vermont? Absolutely. So Nancy Gallagher really did terrific work when she wrote Breeding Better Vermonters in 1999. It's a fascinating look into the Eugenics Survey of Vermont, which was a private program from 1925 to 1936. 
But there was this public misconception that eugenics in Vermont was really limited to this private program that was headed up by UVM professor Henry Perkins, which was not the case. And when I began to look at the history of eugenics in Vermont, I really became interested in how did eugenics emerge in, with such strong support in 1925? So what really came before? Because it's not just a private program. Even within the Eugenics Survey of Vermont, you see state officials at the highest level of government uh, supporting the Eugenics Survey of Vermont and turning over records from the Waterbury Hospital and the Brandon Training School and the Weeks Reform School. So it was very interesting to me how that might have come to happen. And in my work, really looking into this history, it became very apparent that support for eugenics had actually emerged about a decade sooner, and that there were a number of public welfare policies put into place over the late 1800s that had failed and led to such strong support for eugenics. What kind of public welfare policies are you referring to? So in the 1800s, towns were largely responsible for taking care of Vermonters in need and in distress. And one of the ways that they did so was you see the rise of the poor farm. And this is a form of almshouse that's pretty common in the New England region. The idea being that this would be a fairly, typically a farm that's placed out of sight and out of mind, where you would send town citizens that you didn't that you had to take care of, but didn't really want to take care of. Uh, and these are pretty desolate places. Uh, the You wouldn't be allowed to leave a poor farm until the overseer granted permission. And a, one of the, in the early 1900s, we do see some investigations and one investigator notes that in too many of these poor farms, basically the response is how can we spare the least expense until the natural order of things takes care of it for us? So basically how could we spare the least amount of money until a person dies on this poor farm? And these in the- poor farms sound like prisons really. You really weren't allowed to leave. You could be sent away by a town and you would be put to work. We also see, so, you know, we may think of it as a homeless shelter, but it's really not a homeless shelter. You know, you would have babies whose families couldn't take care of them. You would have the elderly put into these poor farms um, and you would have patients with tuberculosis, for example. Uh it was a pretty grim situation. And I would say also that the towns necessarily didn't have the money to take better care of their citizens. But you basic, the problem is that you have a public welfare system that emerges that isn't really doing a whole lot to address many, many issues, many complex interconnected issues, whether that be a debt crisis, whether that be homelessness, whether that be mental health and physical health. Um, and it really is just gonna make the situation worse. So in the late 1800s, you see the state begin to take over care of Vermonters from the towns. And that comes forth in the form of the reform school, which is for juvenile delinquents. And then in the form of the Waterbury State Hospital, which is intended to be a mental hospital for the poor mentally ill. But what happens is basically the towns see this as a way to get rid of their citizens and to pass along these, this expense onto the state. So that's a big issue because you don't just see juvenile delinquents and the mentally ill. You basically see homeless children. You see children being sent along for reasons that are being recorded as juvenile delinquency, but also we know is really dependency. And then in the Waterbury State Hospital, we see people being sent along for something called feeble-mindedness, which is pretty much a catch-all term that could be anywhere from pregnancy out of wedlock to someone who may not, who may be working a blue collar job and may be in debt. So it really is this catch all term that is being used to indicate something referring to mental health, but really isn't actually for mental health reasons. And we also hear about, um, you know, homosexuals being sent there, alcoholics being sent there, indigenous people, you know, this becomes a warehouse essentially for, uh, people who the communities, you know, who the mores of that era uh, disapproved of in some fashion. 
Yes. And it's very hard sometimes to actually grasp the reason for why somebody is being sent, because you would have to go through an official commitment system. Somebody would in the town would have to send you through the courts. But we do know from case records that there are there's the official reason and then there's the actual reason for somebody being sent. And in one case, we know of a case where it was a woman who wanted to get married to someone outside of her race. Uh, they did suggest that she be, this was in the 1920s, that be, she be sent to the Brandon Training School in response. And the Brandon Training School was for essentially kind of people under 20, young people. So the Brandon Training School comes out of the 1912 legislative session, which is really the first time that we see a public call in Vermont for eugenics to be implemented. Now, there is, of course, a sterilization bill that's presented. It very nearly gets through. It only doesn't pass because of a strong veto due to the fact that this attorney general deems it discriminatory. Uh, that is, that it doesn't go, it doesn't encompass enough people. It's actually deemed to be discriminatory that it limits to too much whom can actually get would be candidates for sterilization. But what does get passed is a bill that puts into place the Brandon Training School. This is meant to be a school for feeble-minded children. Uh, what it actually ends up being for is that it houses a number of adults throughout its lifetime. Uh, and we know of cases where there's some people over 21 being kept at the school. And from very early on, we have the superintendent of the training school saying that the school's intent is to essentially segregate this population. And now this segregation is a term that we usually think of in terms of racial segregation in the U.S. Under eugenics, what it's basically referring to is that, quote unquote, undesirable people are being kept away from the population so that they can't procreate. So the Brandon Training School is essentially meant to keep this population away so that they cannot pass on their genes. Let's talk about Henry Perkins and the Eugenics Survey of Vermont. Who was Henry Perkins and what was the Eugenics Survey? Henry Perkins was a professor at the University of Vermont. In the early 1920s, he became interested in beginning a course on heredity at the university. And having been in correspondence with a number, number of national leaders in eugenics, such as Charles Davenport at the Eugenics Record Office, he turned his attention to beginning a eugenics survey here in Vermont. And the intent of this program was to essentially investigate a number of Vermont families and in theory, provide proof that a number of families were responsible for growing public welfare needs and expenses, and that they were reproducing at an uncontrollable rate, and therefore present a case that eugenical, more eugenical measures in the state were needed. So with the, uh, the Eugenic Survey of Vermont, as you note, was a private undertaking. Um, explain. So it was, in theory, a private undertaking. It was headed up by Perkins, but we see a number of state officials also get involved in the advisory committee. So this includes the superintendents of several of the state institutions. So we see the superintendent of the Waterbury Hospital, uh, the superintendent of the Brandon Training School, Dr. Allen, and the superintendent of the Reform School get involved, along with a number of citizens who are involved in private organizations, such as the Vermont Children's Aid Society. So while we are treating it as a private organization, it does actually have access to a number of public institutional records. So medical information that we would now think of as being kept confidential is actually turned over to the eugenics survey and they're allowed to go through it in their investigations. And the reason this is so problematic as is, as I discussed earlier, even at the very early stages at the reform school in the Waterbury Hospital, we see them being turned into a bit of a warehouse where basically anyone is sent. And these, we have, as we discussed, the real reasons for commitment and the official reasons for commitment. So the official reason for commitment for example, a homeless child being labeled as a juvenile delinquent 
is in fact under the eugenics survey turned into a black mark against that child and their family. So all of a sudden, where you have a very tragic case where a reason has been made up to send a child away because the town could not care for him or th their family could not care for him, all of a sudden is going to become a stain on that family's mark and is going to make them a target for investigation under the eugenics survey. I want to quote uh, from your book, um, Dr. Henry Perkins himself. Uh, this is a 1930 quote. And Perkins says, we are confronted by what we consider a eugenical problem of large import and far-reaching implications. How much of the fine spirit of the pioneers, their pride of race, trust in religion, regard for knowledge, is to be found in the present generation? Is the seedbed of the nation being kept up to form her excellence? Will the breeding stock of the future be as virile as it has been? If not, is the seed deteriorating in quality, or are Vermonters neglecting to keep the soil of their seedbed, the physical and social environment of their children, rich, mellow, and weed-free? So he's referring to human beings as weeds, uh, weeds to be eradicated. This, of course, for you know modern-day uh, people, very much evokes. Uh, the language of Nazism and the racial purity and white supremacy preached then. Um, at what point did people start to question this kind of talk about, you know, their fellow citizens as weeds? Backlash against eugenics is something that has been debated amongst historians. And we do see pushback even from the very early ages when eugenics is formed it, from 1883 on. However, we don't always see this language being put into the public knowledge. The quote that you're quoting from is actually something that was published in a journal. It's not a speech that's gone out and been given. We do have very similar language uh, from the superintendent of the Waterbury State Hospital when he's speaking to Governor Meade in preparation for the 1912 legislative session, where he refers to people as rats. These are very horrific terms to be referring to people as. But when it's put to the public, it's put in a sometimes more simpler ways where it's for the betterment of society and where the public sees it is really this great hope and promise for the future. Amidst all these social ills, you can use science to put in a humane answer. Now, when this, lang the, this rather more horrific language gets used, there is some backlash and people do at points speak out against it and really also point out the faults within eugenics itself. It's the faults within eugenics is not something that's unknown to the public at the time and uh, to contemporary uh, geneticists at the time. But it's not something that's necessarily widely discussed. And what are those faults? That's a long answer. So eugenics really, from the first eugenics does not have the tools to study what it purports to study. It really simplifies human genetics from the very beginning. When you're talking about traits such as, they take things that traits such as being able to sing well and simplify that as you have that trait to sing well. So they're taking things that are not actually traits uh, and tra trying to trace them down family trees. They're also purporting to study human heredity when at the time it was fairly well known that you really needed something with a short lifespan to be able to study what you're trying to study. There's a reason why in these early scientific endeavors, you see people studying peas, you see people studying corn or fruit flies. That's the reason they're studying them is because it's very simple to study. You have a short lifespan and you can trace how genes are passed down. So from the start, it is known that you can't quite trace humans in the same way. Now, eugenicists are really purporting to actually be able to draw conclusions that they're not able to draw. And when we look at something like the Eugenics Survey of Vermont, you are able to see that in their research, their own studies don't actually support the conclusions they're making. They make absolute conclusions that 
such and such family, there is a trait of degeneracy or feeble-mindedness that makes itself known in each and every person. That's not actually what their research shows if you're even looking at what they're calling quote unquote degeneracy or feeble-mindedness. You mentioned a, a kind of an inflection point in the whole history of eugenics in Vermont is around 1912. And this of course corresponds with uh, Governor John Abner Mead. He was the governor from 1910 to 1912 who declared to Vermont's legislature in 1912 that, quote, degenerates or defectives are increasing out of all proportion to the normal class of the population. Uh, and he proposed in his farewell speech uh, a solution, eugenics. Talk about the role of Governor John Mead in eugenics in Vermont. So Governor Mead really makes the first call for eugenics in Vermont. However, even though that term eugenics, we haven't been able to find it in use in Vermont and several parts of his correspondence to other people suggest that the term has not quite reached Vermont at the time, we do know that there's an existing interest in heredity. So we have the state institutions already beginning to make family histories and track people who are coming through their doors, which is the work that's later used in the eugenics survey of Vermont. We also know that there is growing concern among state leaders and particularly those in the agricultural sector about whether the Vermonters who are there are as strong as the Vermonters who came before. They're very concerned over crises such as rural depopulation, uh, farm loss, which is not uncommon to New England overall as a region at the time. They're also concerned by the number of people that they're seeing go into the state institutions. All of a sudden you have these state institutions, their populations are exploding. And that's and they're going growing concerned over that because they didn't see before the number of people sent to the town, um, the town poor farms where they're kept out of sight and out of mind. And I, I should just add there, I know that the Waterbury State Hospital had at its peak populations of over 2,000 patients. Yes. I mean, they were small cities. It was a tremendous number of Vermonters who were sent to the, these institutions. And you have to understand for a state, seeing even numbers, I believe in the early 1900s of, it was maybe in the high hundreds at the Waterbury Hospital. That's a tremendous number of people in the state when you have a state population that's only, I believe around 300,000 at the time. So when Governor Mead makes the speech, there is already an immense amount of concern over the public welfare situation in Vermont. And there's a number of reasons for this concern. So he's really responding to that. He did take the two years of his tenure to really go out and study what 20 other progressive states were doing. He really sees this as a progressive gesture um, and particularly a humane suggestion that could address these social ills. And he's really just the first among many in Vermont to turn to this solution of eugenics. Explain what would have been progressive about eugenics to a governor in 1912. Eugenics in America was actually always considered more of a progressive movement than fascism as we now consider it. It was seen as part of the scientific answer you see in America, not just in Vermont and America, an immense wave of interest in addressing problems such as homelessness, uh, the cycle of poverty, the social de the demands of immigrants coming into the cities and not having proper housing, not having proper access to resources, uh, single mothers, uh, child welfare, all of these issues that are growing, people are growing increasingly concerned about. So there is a progressive movement that is coming along to address all of these different issues. Eugenics does happen to find a lot of sympathizers within that movement because it does come across and it's presented as, again, scientific, humane, that all of a sudden you could have this beautiful answer to so many social problems. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't see people dying, if we didn't see people crowded into these tiny apartments that go up and fire, well, at least in the cities. So 
it is presented as this humane scientific answer, but of course we know what eugenics actually was and what it actually resulted in. And that's quite different than what's being presented to the public. So Governor Mead calls for eugenics to be implemented in Vermont uh, in his farewell speech in 1912. What becomes of that? So as I discussed earlier, the sterilization bill doesn't actually come to pass. They come very close. It's actually quite detailed when you go and look at it. And they have a number. The text of it is unfortunately lost to us today, but we know quite a bit about it because of what the veto was. And unfortunately for them, it's not passed because they make it so highly detailed. So that is vetoed and the legislature does refuse to pass it over the veto. But we do see the feeble-minded school being put into place. And the that really does answer the second part of Mead's call, which is to segregate portions of the population so that they can't procreate. And while the public focus really has been on sterilization in Vermont, I would argue actually that segregation was the biggest form of eugenics because you basically have for many decades institutions being able to, at their will, keep people out of the general population. And that once somebody goes into the institution, that is really at the superintendent's uh, decision whether or not to release them. And we have, while we don't know the full extent of segregation, we have a number of records that indicate that officials embrace this as a tool of eugenics and that they were also uh, quite in favor of it. So it does indicate that it was being carried out at quite a large scale. Talk about sterilization and in Vermont um, and its, its history here and, and its role in the eugenics movement here. Sterilization was something that eugenicists always pushed for. It was easier and cheaper than locking somebody up in an institution for the majority of their life. So it was something that from very early on in eugenics, eugenicists were really trying to push for. And you see not just in Vermont, but in the entirety of the United States, a number of unsuccessful attempts to legalize sterilization in the uh, early 1900s. And that changes in really 1927 when you have the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, which famously declares that three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, I won't get into the major issues with that case. It was presented on false information, uh, and it was essentially designed by eugenicists as a test case to get it declared constitutional so that they could support local attempts at the state level to put in sterilization. So in Vermont, we have the 1912 attempt. We also have an attempt in 1927, which doesn't pass. Uh, the legislature at the time is focused on other things, so it's, it doesn't even come up for debate. And then we have the 1931 bill, which does pass. Now, we do know that there was a sterilization case before 1931. So there are some indicators that there may have actually been sterilization uh, cases prior to that. Um, but 1931, now that's, it's a really interesting law. It actually legalizes voluntary sterilization with the intent that people do not procreate and pass on poor heredity. So really in terms of mental health. And it's very illogical in points. You have to have two physicians declare that somebody is going to procreate and pass on poor heredity. And as the writers of the bill know, or actually the superintendents of the state institutions who are supporting it know two physicians are not qualified to make that call. You also are really calling upon people who are supposedly mentally disabled to volunteer to sterilize themselves, which there is a number of issues with that idea of consent. And we have records now that indicate that even though they were calling it voluntary, that there were coercive methods uh, used in the steril in the conversations leading up to sterilization. And we know of, even though sterilization records are still coming to light, there's still a number that are redacted right now. So we don't have the full picture of sterilization, but we do know some general information. Sterilization was performed on children as young as 13, 
Uh, we also have cases of it going into adulthood. We know of about 250 cases right now in Vermont. Um, but returning again to the bill, there is a major issue. It To record whether or not a sterilization happens, the physicians overseeing the procedure basically have to send a nurse certificate of sterilization to the Department of Public Welfare. There is no mechanism put into place to ensure that that certificate actually makes it there. So unlike other states where you have a board overseeing and approving each sterilization, where you might have a better sense of the number of sterilizations occurring, you really have a system put into place in Vermont that makes it very easy at the town level to sterilize somebody, uh, where something called voluntary consent is, there's real problems with that. And where we don't actually know of any reason that where there there was the possibility that a certificate may not be sent in. So while we do have records, there are issues with those records. So um, let me make sure I follow you here. Voluntary consent is, was this ever given or is this always considered to be coerced? Um, what is voluntary consent for? Why would somebody consent to be sterilized? It's a really odd thing that they put in. And we do know that there were supporters of the bill and particularly the superintendent of the Brandon Training School who were quite nervous about being sued. You have to keep in mind that in the United States, a number of sterilization laws had been overturned as unconstitutional at the state level before the 1927 case. So this idea of voluntary consent was probably put in to be this workaround that you can't be sued in a civil case if somebody did consent to it. However, you know, when you're talking about sterilizations of children or of the mentally disabled, what does that, or somebody who is being considered mentally disabled for the purposes of being sent to the institution, and we've discussed how there's a number of reasons people are actually sent to those institutions, what does voluntary consent then actually mean? And we do have some records from the Brandon Training School because likely because of this fear of minutes kept of conversations between people being considered for sterilization and staff at the uh, training school. And those records indicate that there wasn't really a general awareness of the procedure, that it was being presented as a fairly minor procedure, which is true for vasectomy. It's not true for female sterilization. That requires even back then two to three weeks in the hospital. Uh, and that's really a major operation that they're presenting as minor, no problem, no issue operation. So we know from those records that they're not really quite being truthful about what they're actually what is actually going on. And there are these questions that emerge even from those records of, does somebody actually know that they're what they're signing up for and what they're agreeing to? Do we know how many Vermonters were sterilized under this law? We only have the records we have. So it's something that I always hesitate to give a number on. Officially, we have about 250 records. We also have separate records from the Brandon Training School, which we're not quite sure yet how many of those correspond with the 250 certificates sent to the Department of Public Welfare. And one of the major issues beyond just this question of were all the certificates sent in and our knowledge that there was opportunity for certificates not to be sent in, we do know of one case where the Department of Public Welfare became aware of a sterilization case and had to track down who it had actually, what had actually happened because the certificate was never sent in, is that the records stop in 19, around 1952. And there's no reason for the records to stop in 1952 that we're aware of right now. Uh, the law itself actually is not overturned until around the late 1970s, and it is replaced by a forced sterilization law that's in place today. So the records we have are limited and well, I know that there is public interest in putting a number and making a conclusion to the number of sterilizations. It's really important to understand that the records we have, we know that they're limited. We know that there are issues. And 
there is this question of why do they stop all of a sudden in the 1950s? So what happens in those two decades after? And why do they stop in the 1950s, the records? We don't know. It's a possibility. It, we really don't know. It's a very interesting question. Um, it's possible that the records may have been stored elsewhere. Um, it's possible that a new system was put into place. Uh, we really, it is something that we're still looking into. I want to uh, look now at the the issue of Governor John Meade has, of course, brought the eugenics history and discussion uh, squarely into the modern era, um, thanks to something going on at Middlebury College. Mead Chapel, as it has been known for many years, has been a centerpiece of the campus. And uh, recently, Middlebury College decided to dename the chapel because of Mead's involvement with the eugenics program in Vermont. This has resulted in former Governor Jim Douglas suing Middlebury College, not only his alma mater, but his employer, um, charging that they have unfairly canceled Governor Meade and that he really did not play a significant role. What is your take on this whole, uh, do you think that Governor Meade, that denaming the chapel, that um, that's based in pretty strong historical fact that Governor Meade did play a large, a significant role and have a lot of responsibility for the eugenics history in Vermont? One of the things that I hope my book will help people understand is how many people did play a role in eugenics in Vermont. And you really do see participation at the highest level of government across several decades. And a number of state officials, as well as private citizens, also throw their support in for eugenics. So I hope my book will help people understand why these Vermonters did choose to support eugenics and the impact that that had on their fellow Vermonters. In terms of the renamings that have taken place, not only at Middlebury College, but also at other organizations around the state and other institutions around the state, I really do believe that that's up to those specific institutions to decide how to approach this history. It is a very complicated history, and there is absolutely a need for more public awareness and more public understanding. And I do think we're beginning to see that push now. People do want to know what happened to families that they know, to neighbors and family and friends and loved ones that they know. And we are beginning to see steps being taken towards highlighting that history today. What do you think is the appropriate responsibility that Governor Meade bears for eugenics program in Vermont? I think his words speak for themselves. You know, he did give a speech. He did call for a eugenics solution. There were also a number of other Vermonters who called for such solutions. And you have to, when you're looking at the broader history, you really have to understand why they came to this conclusion and what precisely their words resulted in. So while the public focus has really been on sterilization, there's another, there's a number of other eugenic policies that are put into place. So you have segregation, as we've discussed. We also see great support for things such as education of Vermonters on eugenical ideals. So it's important to consider what their words were and what they resulted in. Do you think it's appropriate that Middlebury has taken his name off the chapel, that it's his contribution to Vermont history is not one that should be, you know, sort of celebrated with the naming of the centerpiece of their campus. As I said, I really do believe it's up to the individual institutions. There were so many Vermonters who were involved in this that you really have to, I think it, what is most important is that we take a look at people who were involved in eugenics, not just in Vermont, but in America overall, and consider what that eventual impact was. 
because it's not just a speech. It's not just a call for eugenics that actually did result in policies that were put into place. What resulted in the downfall of eugenics, both in Vermont and in the country? That's a really interesting question. So pre-World War II, we actually have a letter from a leading American eugenicist uh, to Henry Perkins that predicts that basically if Hitler succeeds in his eugenic policies, there's going to be massive support for eugenics. But if he fails, that's going to be the death of American eugenics. And I'm summarizing those words, obviously. It's quite a long letter. So he is partially correct. Uh, Post-World War II, you see, obviously, immense public backlash to what has happened in Nazi Germany and the absolute atrocities that occurred. But in America, there is very swiftly this awareness that American eugenics, you can no longer use the term eugenics. They're going to have to rebrand. More research needs to be done, but we do have records that indicate that American eugenicists very quickly renamed what they were calling eugenics and went underground, even as eugenical policies remained. So actually at the federal level, you do see the continuation of policies such as sterilization, and they actually occur at a larger scale that we know of uh, post-World War II in the later decades of the 20th century. So it's very difficult to determine when eugenics actually ends because we don't actually see its demise. We actually see eugenics being transformed into something else uh, and ideals and policies being continued. Um, so essentially, Nazi science and the white supremacy advocated by Hitler just kind of spoiled the brand, um, but it morphed. What are some modern forms that you see eugenics reappearing in society over the recent years? Again, it's such an interesting question, and it's it's very hard as a historian to wrap your hands around it because it is pretty much in living memory today. So trying to under trying to take a step back and look at things with an eagle eye perspective is quite difficult whenever you're talking about such recent history. The problem with placing dates on eugenics, obviously we do know it was founded in 1883, so that's very helpful for knowing when it started, is that eugenics itself is not a unique idea. We know from the very beginning that eugenics is basically just putting a so-called scientific lens on very, very old ideas of biases that some people are better than others that date back to time immemorial. So eugenics itself is never really a unique idea. It's just taking a scientific lens and applying it to these existing biases. And obviously we know it's a pseudoscience. We know there are major issues with the research, uh, but that does per that does complicate putting an end date on it because are we actually looking at eugenics? Are we looking at a transformation of eugenics or are we looking at ideas that have emerged from different sources? Recently, Donald Trump made a comment uh, and referred to the idea that immigrants were poisoning the blood uh, of America, which is very reminiscent of the kind of language that we heard, for example, Henry Perkins using in the quote that I read earlier, this idea that there is pure blood and tainted blood. Do you think that's an example of how eugenics has lived on and morphed in modern thinking? It's very hard to determine. As I said, these aren't new ideas. Uh, quite certainly there's always been fears of immigrants um, dating back to the founding of America and two countries even before us. Uh, so it is very hard to sit to when you're talking about eugenics today to understand how it might still be take place in society. In 2021, the Vermont legislature um, voted to apologize for the eugenics program. And I believe you 
testified in the hearings that led up to that. Um, tell me about your role in that and why you think an apology, wh what do you think that accomplishes? I was asked to testify based on my experience as a historian and to testify as to the history of what had occurred along with side Nancy Gallagher and several other people. Again, it really is up to, I do firmly believe that it's up to the people of Vermont and institutions to take steps themselves to understand what this history has been and what would be the appropriate response. Uh, in regards to the state legislature, I really do applaud them. Vermont is one of the few states that has actually apologized for this history. Eugenics was very, very widespread across America, across the majority of the 20th century. And Vermont really has been one of the only states that's taken steps to address this history. I, In terms of an apology, it's an important step to take to acknowledge that something has occurred, that this wasn't just, you know, something that may have impacted just a few people, that there was state involvement, that there was state sanctioning of institutions carrying out these policies and programs and of help for private individuals who chose, such as Henry Perkins, who chose to carry out eugenics. So it was an important first step. And it's always something when you have something like eugenics to just even acknowledge that this has occurred, that this has taken place and it's a part of our history. It's an important first step. What damage do you think eugenics did um, when it was in its heyday in Vermont and in the country? The damage eugenics did is one of those questions that we're still trying to answer because basically you have a field that was not just designed to get rid of one person. You really have to look at it in its entirety. It's designed to have intergenerational impact. If you can't get rid of one person, because in America, we don't see the killing programs that we see in Nazi Germany, and that's really important. What we do see is attempts to basically cut off family lines and to cut off bloodlines. So it's designed to not just impact one member of the family, it's designed to break apart entire families and to basically get rid of them over several generations, whether that be segregating them in an institution, whether that be sterilizing them, whether that be inflicting so much trauma that the family no longer comes together. And we do see people who are released from institutions who end up homeless, who don't uh, really go on to live fulfilling lives, who don't end up really with the support structure around them. We also see a different form of eugenics take place in America that is sometimes called positive eugenics. Now, negative eugenics I've spoken a lot to, and that is pretty much attempts to get rid of quote unquote undesirable people. Positive eugenics is attempts to help so-called desirable people procreate. So that might take the form of college lectures where young women are told that need, they need to go out and marry and stop pursuing higher education because they're committing race suicide. You also have families encouraged to take part in things called fitter family and better baby contests where certain traits and qualities are emphasized. And we call this positive eugenics, but it's that's kind of a misnomer because we really need to understand that they're only emphasizing a certain ideal. And we need to ask the question, well, what is not being rewarded here? And what our families being told is not good to, what is not good? And those two sides of the coin of eugenics are carried out throughout the country. So when we're trying to understand the impact, it's still quite hard to quantify because you have people being educated with these ideals, you have other families being separated. And it's this intergenerational impact that is designed to continue living on even as programs and policies may be taken down. How did this become um, your focus as an undergraduate? What captured your attention and imagination I mean, this book is really an exhaustive history. It's thoroughly documented. You have clearly thrown yourself into this topic 
and it has taken um, no small part of your life. Uh, why? It's one of those histories. It's incredibly tragic to look back at what's happened, but it's also important to understand why it happened and what has resulted out of it. We still see broader impacts today, whether that be deinstitutionalization because the mental hospital is being shut down. Uh, and we still really have not adequately answered a number of public welfare needs that eugenicists were aiming to answer by just getting rid of people, which is a rather horrific solution. As a historian, of course, you have the academic interest that this is a history that has been massively understudied. There is so much need for research, both in Vermont and at the national level. But it is something that really, on a personal level, just spoke to me as something that deserved to be studied on its own merits, that people really deserve to know why it happened and to too many Vermonters why it happened to them. And it is my hope, you know, thank you for reading the book and thank you for your thoughts on it. I do think we're going to continue to see stories emerge. Uh, there are still a number of records that are missing that may be lost to time. We really don't know the role of private organizations, what they played in the eugenics movement. We're also missing the voices of the victims for the large part. And we may never be able to actually hear those voices. But this book was really an attempt that if we can't have the victim's stories from their own lips. Uh, what would eugenics have actually looked like in everyday life? When we're talking about these policies, what would it have actually meant for somebody who was institutionalized or who went through sterilization? And that is something I hope the book captures. Well, Mercedes de Guardiola, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Mercedes de Guardiola is the author of the new book, Vermont for the Vermonters, The History of Eugenics in the Green Mountain State, published by the Vermont Historical Society. 